It's Thursday, February 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Roger Stone is causing a stir again. Prosecutors had recommended he serve seven to nine years in prison after being found guilty of obstruction and witness tampering. But President Trump tweeted his displeasure about this, and then the Department of Justice submitted a new sentencing recommendation, saying nine years is way too much. Trump praised Attorney General Bill Barr for intervening in the matter, and all four prosecutors withdrew from the case. Ursula Perano, reporter at Axios, joins us for the latest dust-up. Next, Bernie Sanders emerged victorious in the New Hampshire primary. There are now two front-runners in the race, Bernie on the progressive side and Pete Buttigieg on the moderate side. The landscape of the Democratic race could be changing with a rising Amy Klobuchar and a declining Joe Biden. Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico, joins us for what happened in New Hampshire. Finally, as populations continue to age, those people caring for both children and parents are facing growing pressures. Called the sandwich generation, many are in pivotal points in their lives and careers and are torn between work and caregiving responsibilities. Claire Ansbury, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about those stuck in the middle. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They treated Roger Stone very badly. They treated everybody very badly. And if you look at the Mueller investigation, it was a scam. Joining us now is Ursula Perano, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Ursula. Yeah, happy to be here. We're going to be talking about Roger Stone and kind of the little controversy surrounding him the Justice Department had submitted some sentencing recommendations for Roger Stone, and the president went out and tweeted about it, said, hey, this is crap. We shouldn't be doing this. Then shortly after that, the attorney general said, well, we're going to be making a little bit of changes to that. And in response to all of this, all four prosecutors who tried Stone in this case decided to leave. I think one of them just outright quit completely. And it started causing a lot of questions like, did the attorney general do this? Did they change the sentencing guidelines because of what the president had said? And has this caused this whole controversy? Ursula, help us walk through this. What happened? So essentially, rewind, Stone was indicted last November on seven counts related to his pursuit of information regarding when WikiLeaks would drop the damaging Hillary Clinton emails in 2016. Fast forward, on Monday, prosecutors who had tried the case recommended seven to nine years of prison time for Stone. But DOJ swooped in the day after, and they argued that while they agree incarceration is justified and that they don't have specific sentencing guidelines as far as time, they think that seven to nine years is too harsh to fit the crime. Those four prosecutors did all withdraw from the case the day after, and then sort of the crux of it has been that Trump's chiming in now, and he's both scolded the prosecutors and the judge in the case and offered his praise to Attorney General Barr over how DOJ has been handling it. But DOJ is maintaining that their decision to intervene in the recommendation for Stone was independent of any influence from the White House. That could very well be. It's just tough to follow that line of thinking when the president tweets something very publicly, makes it very publicly known, and then things change immediately after that. You know, the sequence of events don't always work out that way, I guess. As far as the prosecutors themselves Did they give any specific reasons? Did they make any statements saying why they were leaving? You know, it's varied from prosecutor to prosecutor, but you're right. There is this perspective of 
is this a direct retaliation? How will Trump handle it going forward? And Trump hasn't been quiet and shy about expressing his opinions on the Stone case, even though it will quite obviously be met with accusations of political interference by the president. And in the new sentencing guidelines, you know, they said things like Roger Stone's advanced age, his health, lack of criminal history. These are reasons why he doesn't deserve seven to nine years. So now it all falls onto the judge in the case. This is U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who was also getting some heat from the president because I guess she had done stuff with the Mueller case and whatnot. So she's also now a target of the president in all of this. There's been questions of intimidation and, you know, Democrats are pushing back a lot of congressional Democrats calling for an investigation into the DOJ intervention in the Stone case. And you are right. DOJ is citing a number of reasons, including his health, including his advanced age as to why they think the sentence should be shorter. But there's been an argument by prosecutors that Stone has a sort of contempt for the law and that this is the sentence they believe fits. You know, Stone has been a seasoned Republican strategist. He goes back decades and he's described himself as a political trickster. And he hasn't been shy about using dirty strategies, per se, within his Republican pursuits and helping candidates that he is campaigning for. But he does maintain that even though he's played some dirty tricks, he hasn't crossed into the threshold of illegality. I know they've asked the president if he is planning on pardoning Roger Stone. That's another thing he's just not really saying, but that could also be in Roger Stone's future. I think there's a lot of questions that the attorney general needs to answer because he's already been put in this position before also where they're saying you're just doing the bidding of the president, things like that. And I know Senator Lindsey Graham has kind of shut down requests from Democrats. Uh, You know, he said, we're not going to call Bill Barr in to testify against this. So these are a lot of the questions kind of going around right now. Trump, he Wednesday said that he's not going to rule in on a potential pardon for Stone yet, but that's obviously this huge looming question. Stone was one of his close associates throughout the campaign. And like you said, Trump is very emboldened right now, coming off of impeachment, particularly just the other week. He feels in a way invincible. His polling is doing well. His approval numbers are doing well. You know, it's kind of like a what do you have to lose at this point mentality. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Oscar. Hello, America. I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat Donald Trump. Joining us now is Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Maya. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the results of the New Hampshire primary. Bernie Sanders came out on top winning there with 25.7% of the vote. Mayor Pete Buttigieg came in second, 24.4%. They were so close, though, that they awarded the same number of delegates to each of them, nine delegates each, which is interesting because the overall delegate count now Pete Buttigieg is still in first place with 22 delegates and Bernie Sanders, 21. But after this contest, we have two new frontrunners, a progressive candidate in Bernie Sanders and a more moderate candidate in Pete Buttigieg. Maya, tell us a little bit more what we know now more after the New Hampshire primary. Well, I think you're absolutely right to say that we have some new frontrunners. And if you had said even last week that Amy Klobuchar would be in third place in this race, 
that would probably be a shock to a number of people. However, it it goes to show you that we just don't really know how this thing is going to pan out. What I will say, though, of course, what matters the most right now is getting delegates. And what that requires is building a coalition. So we've gotten the shock of these results. And now the opportunity is in the hands of folks like Bernie Sanders and especially Pete Buttigieg to build a stronger coalition. As we know, Buttigieg has struggled a lot to gain the attention of people of color. So as a front runner and getting the front runner treatment, he has to really live out what the definition of a front runner really is, which means having the greatest amount of support of the greatest number of people. The interesting thing, too, that's shaping up here is that while Bernie Sanders did well, obviously, in Iowa and won in New Hampshire, really the moderates are kind of still not certain who their candidate is, let's say. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has fallen a little further down in the pack, making Bernie that progressive candidate of choice. But if you combine the votes for the moderates, you know, maybe once they coalesce or like you said, once they build that coalition, the moderates will outweigh the progressives, at least on this front. Honestly, this is also a game of how voters self-identify. One thing that my colleagues have pointed out, especially those who are on the ground in New Hampshire, is in the midst of this indecision from a number of voters in New Hampshire and even in Iowa, folks were torn between a far progressive like Bernie Sanders and a moderate like Amy Klobuchar. So you also have to kind of figure out and ask folks, okay, well, what are the policies that matter the most to you? And what we've heard time and time again is that healthcare is something that voters really do care about. And Sanders is someone who has had a solid message on healthcare from the beginning. I mean, really for decades, he's had a solid message that has not changed. And that resonated. And you can tell. I mean, it's evident now in how he's doing. I think folks who may have thought that they were more moderate in their political views really liked what Sanders had to say about healthcare and also about things like student loans and now find themselves in the progressive lane unexpectedly. Looking to Amy Klobuchar, this is on her these next few weeks, these next few contests to really capitalize on the momentum that she has, you know, coming in third place is really great. She's got some delegates out of that also, but it's going to be interesting to see how she plays the next few weeks because she went all in really in Iowa and New Hampshire. She had a pretty robust operation there, but in these next few states that are coming up to vote next and leading into Super Tuesday, the operation, not so big. And the thing about Amy that's interesting is that she's also a very good public speaker and she's had several strong debate performances. And I think that matters a lot to voters because they're hearing her say, if you are a middle class voter and you don't know how you're going to make it to the next day, I hear you, I see you and I will fight for you. And that's messaging that right now really works. However, for folks like Elizabeth Warren, who have sort of wavered on topics like healthcare, they're falling out of touch with her, I think. And what this means now, getting back to your earlier point about having these three people at the top is there's a lot of room for consolidation. So with this messaging about healthcare and about education, does that mean that folks who once were for Warren now do switch to Klobuchar? And does that boost her profile nationally? I'm not sure. And so we'll have to wait now um, until Nevada, where the electorate is far less white and just a lot more diverse to see really where these candidates stand now on a different terrain. And that leads us to Joe Biden, a disappointing showing in New Hampshire, although we knew it already. He wasn't even there when the results came in. He had already skipped town to South Carolina. But that is his, quote unquote, firewall there with African-American voters. He's looking to Nevada as well. But people are getting scared that this whole electability thing that Joe Biden had been talking about for so long might not be there. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm in South Carolina now, and I saw the former vice president speak last night in Columbia, and his supporters remain very strong and steadfast in their support of the vice president. But one thing that I heard a lot from people is we're waiting for Uncle Joe. We want Uncle Joe to show up. And what that means is they support Joe Biden's candidacy and they still believe in the message that he's most electable, but they need for him to demonstrate that as well. They're looking for a stronger performance. They want him to behave like a front runner, I think, is what they're getting at. And they're just not quite seeing it. And so if he doesn't perform, I really think in the top two slots in Nevada, it's still possible for him to finish in first in South Carolina. But if he gets the win just by the skin of his teeth, it's still hard to make a strong case for his path to the nomination. Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. People say, okay, when you think of a sandwich, you have two sides squeezing the middle. Some people are saying there's different variations of this sandwich generation today. Grandparents taking care of their grandkids along with a spouse. Joining us now is Claire Ansbury, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Claire. Great to be here. We're going to be talking about the sandwich generation It was uh, one of the more recent Democratic debates where Senator Amy Klobuchar got a question about Medicare for all and the public option. She gave an answer. She shifted to talking about long-term care, and she said, we have to make it easier for families to be able to provide long-term care for their aging parents and things like that. And she said, it's not just for the seniors, it's also for the sandwich generation, people trying to help out their parents. And then we came across your article, Claire, talking about how as the population is aging, There's people caught in the middle, the sandwich generation, that are caring for both their parents and their kids. There's an estimated 9 million people who are going through this, mostly women, but men as well. But the demands on these people are just growing. There's a lot of pressure associated with this. So tell us a little bit about this, Claire. The whole term sandwich generation is not really a new one. I came across it back in the early 80s, but it's so different now. First of all, the baby boomer population is aging, so there's incredible demand. Family caregivers are sort of the backbone of our caregiving system. Families are smaller, so there's not as many kids to take care of adults their parents. And baby boomers tend to be more than previous generations single. So you don't have that natural spouse always there and available. Women, as you said, they are the majority of the caregivers, although men are really stepping up, especially in millennials. I think it's 40% of men are now caregivers. But you have more women working, more households where the couple is working. Women are having children later, so they may be having a child at 40 just as their parent, you know, needs them. So you have women having children later, you have smaller families, you have them juggling work responsibilities, you have a huge population of parents getting older with a lot of medical advances, people are living longer with chronic illnesses, which is a wonderful thing, but then they often and can live long past the time when they're able to take care of themselves. Right. And, you know, we were talking about the boomers. Right now, a lot of them are going to start reaching their 80s as early as 2026. So in six years, they reach this other milestone. The people that are in this kind of quote unquote sandwich generation, I mean, it ranges. There's people in their 30s all the way to their 50s that are dealing with things like this. And two thirds of them have jobs that on average they work 36 hours a week and then about 22 hours a week 
devoted to caring for an adult in their life. That is a lot of stress and time commitments that need to be managed. It really is. Some people, in terms of response, it's amazing. There, People say, okay, when you think of a sandwich, you have two sides squeezing the middle. Some people are saying there's different variations of this sandwich generation today. Grandparents taking care of their grandkids along with a spouse. It's just this huge demographic bubble of people who are going to be needing care. And the other issue is caregiving is expensive if you try to do it privately. So a lot of families, they want to take care of their parents. And in a lot of cases, they can't afford to hire anyone to do it for them. They don't want to. It's not like they want to, you know, have their parents taken care of by somebody else, but the help is expensive. Sandwich caregivers, for all caregiving, out-of-pocket costs, average about $7,000 a year. And that really falls to the family. And with other conditions like dementia, dementia is another huge factor now with people living so long, the prevalence of dementia is rising. And dementia is one of the most demanding of caregiving, and it can also be really expensive. So there's a financial pressure as well. And if you think about a couple who have young kids, they have daycare costs, they have mortgages, some of them may still be paying off their college loan. So it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, one of the numbers you had in your article, about 25% of dementia caregivers are also caring for children under the age of 18. So that definitely seems to be one of the main illnesses affecting older people right now. And beyond that, you were talking about people trying to get outside help and everything. When that's not available, a lot of times these people have to move in with their parents or have their parents move in with them. And about a third of sandwich caregivers live in the same home as the parent that need that help. So you start to see all of this all across the country. There's a bunch of different examples that you have from families in your story, which are all very well worth reading. But you also put some tips in here for people that might be going through this or approaching this. Help us with some of those, because a lot of these seem very common sense, but they need to be said. I mean, the very first one that you had in here, setting boundaries, which I think is one of the most important things and also one of the most difficult things. You want to be able to help your parents. You want to help your kids, but you have to set some boundaries just for yourself or your own sanity. And I think that, as you said, it's one of the hardest things to do. It makes so much sense. Setting boundaries, seeking balance. Everybody says, look, you can't take care of somebody else if you're not taking care of yourself. The problem is, is that in the reality of your 24-hour day, you may say, I don't have time. My kids need me. My mom needs me. Work needs me. My husband needs me. My wife needs me. So it really is a difficult thing. And, you know, I could see some people saying easier said than done. It requires deliberation. And even if it's just a small thing, somebody was saying, if I just have a 15 minute walk, or I know that I can go out one night every two weeks for two hours with my friends, I just need that. That's really important. And people around them can help out. And, you know, it's okay to ask people for help to say, your spouse, I have to get out. You can get out too. You know, let's take turns. You do this one night and I'll do this another night, but let's just make time to set aside that time because it really is important. Claire Ansbury, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.